Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. And I'm excited about our guest today. You know, we've talked about this issue of agriculture, sustainable agriculture, a sustainable food system many times on Go Green Radio. But today we're coming at it from a different angle. Um, Our guest today is the CEO of an organization called Rare. And they have a global contest going on called Solution Search. And we're going to dig into the details with Brett. Uh, in just a moment, but basically what they're looking for are are ideas and proven methods that are ready to be scaled up. Um, Maybe they're happening in a remote part of the world and nobody knows about it. Um, And so this contest is meant to bring some of these solutions that might be working in different parts of the world to the global stage so that we can all take a look at them. And so I'm really excited to introduce our guest today, Brett Jenks from Rare. Welcome to Go Green Radio, Brett. Glad to have you on the show. Thank you, Jill. Thank you, Jill. It's great to be here. Well, before we talk about the details of the contest that your organization is offering, let's talk about the problem for which you are looking for solutions. I mean, it's no secret that the world's population is growing rapidly, and that translates into the need to produce more food to feed everybody. Um, We don't want people going hungry, um, although that's still a problem in many corners of the world, not to mention in, in pockets here in the United States. But Why can't we just continue ramping up production as we have for the past 50 or so years? Have we reached the limits of what people call the green revolution? Yeah, I think that's really well said. I mean, clearly what what got us here uh, is not going to get us where we need to go. And to to put a fine point on it, um, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations would would say very clearly that by 2050 – the world's population should be somewhere around 9.1 billion people. So that's a, about a 34% increase over today. So to feed that population, we're probably going to have to increase food production by about 100%. And that doesn't quite make sense. You would assume it's 34%, and, and it would just mimic the growth in population. But in reality, with the growing middle class in developing nations and the, and the growing population in places like China or Brazil or, or South Africa, Southern Africa, I should say, those folks um, want to eat more than grains. They want to they wanna eat uh, what we in North America eat, beef and chicken and pork and, and et cetera. So we need to produce a lot more food and in a hurry to meet those, um, those dietary uh, needs, which poses a really big problem. There's only so much uh, that can be grown on, on a particular uh, acre of land, uh, and we're beginning to reach the limits of, the, of yields for a variety uh, of crops. Um, and whether we're talking about growing grains or cattle or even what comes out of the forest for traditional indigenous uh, 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 peoples, or even with our uh, fisheries, you know, coastal, coastal fisheries, we're beginning to reach what what we could just simply describe as the logical limits of what those ecosystems can provide. So we're left with a problem. And, and so we in the conservation community 
are thinking not just about how to protect nature and, and create national parks and, and ensure the biological diversity on which all of these things evolved over time, but we're thinking you know, about the humanitarian need to produce sustainably enough food to, to feed uh, sustainably nine, nine to nine and a half billion people. It, it's a really big challenge. You know, and if, and if I can, there's, there's, a, there's a few examples as we've begun to research this issue that, that stand out that I think are pretty fascinating. So let's take uh, our experience here in the United States um, with, you know, something we, we, uh, we commonly purchase year-round, um, a little shiny red apple. So 100 mm-hmm. years ago in the United States, there were more than 7,000 varieties of apples, and in the last hundred years, we've lost 6,000 of those varieties, um, more than 85% of them. It's fair to say that just two varieties of apples, um, and I, I'm not even sure I could name which ones there. I think we could all guess based on what we've all purchased in the last um, you know, few weeks. But just two of those varieties account for about 50% of the entire U.S. apple crop. So remember, we're talking about biodiversity, so the diversity of all these species. And we just basically described, just with something as simple as an apple, going from 7,000 varieties 100 years ago to just two varieties accounting for 50% of the crop today. And this is one of the challenges that we're facing. I I could give you a similar example you know, for rice uh, and for, for other crops in other parts of the world. Uh, just one more, um, and then I'll hand it back to you. But in, in the Philippines, prior to the Green Revolution, which you mentioned, in this incredible increase in yields in, you know, in the 70s and 80s around um, wheat and rice, small farmers in the Philippines cultivated literally over a 1,000 different varieties of rice. By the mid or late 1980s, just two varieties of rice accounted for 98% of all rice agriculture in, in the country. So when you think about it, industrial agriculture, which isn't necessarily bad, has led to this incredible homogeneity or uniformity, which runs counter to the whole concept of diversity and resilience and ongoing evolution of new varieties and new approaches. And that's really the, the, the crux of the issue. So the need for a lot more food and then reaching the limits of, 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 of the yields of a variety of, of agricultural products, and then just the lack of diversity, you know, really the hollowing out of the natural R&D lab uh, of agriculture. This is the problem we're facing. Well said. And that's something that I think we can all understand. I mean, I, I know the two varieties of apples that you're referring to because I see them in unbelievable supply in my own grocery store. And so it is pretty stark um, to think about that loss of biodiversity. Now, kind of switching gears a little bit, I I went to a conference back in November that was in uh, D.C. and I heard a representative from the EPA who's actually sort of the, the point person on the subject of food waste. And she said that in America, we waste about 40% of the food that we purchase. So my question to you is, why not focus on wasting less food in order to feed more people rather than producing more food? Or is that, you know, something that we have to do kind of multitasking? Talk to us about this issue of food waste. 
Yeah, food waste is a critical issue. Um, there's no question about it. I, I think globally the number is more like 50%. I think we lose an estimated um, 25% of the world's food calories um, and a 50% of total food by weight or volume um, daily around the world. And that's a result of you know, basic stuff that, you, you know, you just, if you just think it through, how, how much is lost uh, in the harvesting process? How much is lost in the storage process? How much is lost in shipping? And, and then in certain households, how much is lost, um, you know, at the table? How much is then either composted or, or thrown away? In, in total, you know, you take a little clip at each one of those stages of the process of you know just getting an apple to you or just getting a a steak to you, and you can see how much you know how much waste there is. I think it's important though to put that in the in the to, to really answer your question in the in the broader framework. Um, there's a guy I really admire at the California Academy of Sciences named John Foley who wrote a really great piece for National Geographic um, last year about the whole global food. Um, production challenge. And he mentioned as, as one of the five ways of addressing um, this, this global food uh, gap, um, reducing waste is clearly a top five issue. And so figuring out how to, how to tackle waste, you know, reducing e- eating leftovers, um, encouraging cafeterias and restaurants to, to develop waste reducing uh, measures, working on these supply chains so that um, we have better storage, better transportation, um, rethinking the you know what we eat. There's so much more of all of this food we grow that we could actually eat if 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 we were all a little more creative and if and if, if chefs could inspire us to um, you know to to uh, make make our our palates a little more diverse. But there's a whole host of other pieces of the solution that are equally important. You know, one of them I would say probably the biggest one long term is um, is not just intensifying you know our, our agriculture. So that we don't have to, so that we can freeze our footprint and not have to cultivate more land, you know, which has been the traditional approach. Need more food? Well, cut down another acre of forest and plant uh, a crop or grow cattle, and um, you'll solve the problem. But we're running out of those resources, and so we need. So, you know, step one, freeze the footprint. Step two, uh, grow more food and intensify our our use uh, and make more efficient our use. Uh, of, of land that we're currently cultivating. Um, simply get better and smarter at the way we grow food. There's drip agriculture uh, where you, you can literally uh, engineer ways creatively to put the right drop of water at the right time of day on the right part of a plant rather than just spraying over, you know, like most of us do, you know, our gardens uh, in, in the evening. Um, so there's ways of boosting efficiency. So that's step one, step two, step three. You know, step five is reduce waste. Finally, I think probably the biggest opportunity that we have long term is really to address this question of what we eat because this is what's driving, you know, the challenge. And, and here's where it, it, it um, you know, this is a conversation people don't necessarily like to have because it, it, it's very personal, what we eat. Most people spend their time eating and, and thinking about how they wish they ate less. It's <laughs> rare that people have conversations about what the impact of their average meal is on the, the landscape they live in. But just to give you an example, if you think about beef, 
if, if, if we grow 100 calories of grains to feed animals that we eat, we only get three of those 100 calories when we eat beef. That's how much we lose in, 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 the, trans, in the conversion process from growing a grain to feeding it to uh, cattle to then um, um, harvesting and curing and eating. Right. Uh, it's the least That's efficient a, way of getting our calories. Yeah. And the environmental impact of that is tremendous. And actually, I want to touch on that when we come back. We're going to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, um, I want to touch on the environmental impact of our current agricultural system and then dive into the details of the contest that you're that you're providing, Brett. So we'll be right back, folks. Don't go away. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News, opinion, passion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all tune in. And if you're just joining us, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Brett Jenks. He's the CEO of an organization called Rare, and they have launched a global contest um, to help find solutions to our current agricultural situation. And we've been talking in the last segment about some of the challenges that we're going to face as our population, as our global population um, continues to swell. How do we feed um, this 
burgeoning population um, in a sustainable way. And and Brett, I'd love for you to explain to us, because this is Go Green Radio, we like to talk about environmental impacts. What are some of the environmental problems that are caused by the current agricultural system that might not be sustainable if we carry them into the future? Well, great. Just to give you a few examples that from our from our daily lives, um, we think about uh, eating beef, having a hamburger, having a steak. Um, it's a it's a it's an American tradition. It's a staple food. Um, you know, to many parts of the world, it's a luxury item. Uh, but it it is um, you know it's it's part of our diet. However, it comes at a pretty significant cost. So, it's fair to say that one of the chief sources of deforestation throughout South America and Central America, and at one point throughout North America, was um, the, the conversion of forests uh, and, and other landscapes to cattle ranches. Um, this is a big deal, not just because of the, the loss of the trees and, and the soil beneath the trees and what we would call bio, biological diversity, but this is also, um, a, these forests store a lot of our um, CO2. And so from a greenhouse gas standpoint, um, beef has a significant impact on greenhouse gases. It's fair to say that 14% of total global greenhouse gas emissions come from agriculture. And some would argue it's actually as high as 30%, but it just depends on how you're doing your accounting. This This comes from... The fertilizers we use uh, from livestock production, from you know, wetland conversion for rice cultivation, uh, the way we manage the, uh, the cattle and the manure and the, the, um, um, the methane that comes from cattle, uh, the burning of savannas and agricultural um, uh, plowing and, and conversion. So that's, that's just beef and that's just how we convert landscapes um, to, to produce it. Now, members of my family eat beef, and lots of people are proud of their beef production uh, approaches, and, you know, we wouldn't tell anybody that the world needs to stop eating beef. We definitely need to think, you know, much more about it. I I, I certainly wouldn't mind if, you know, a billion people stopped eating beef from one day to the other, but that would, we we, we probably need to figure out the right way to to downsize our beef consumption. But just from basic crops, take, take away um, you know, something like uh, as, as obvious as beef. Think of the clothes we wear. Um, think of cotton. Cotton uh, is one of the great users of pesticides um, and of fertilizers. And it's a difficult co- crop to grow. Um, and so just wearing our you know, T-shirt and undergarments uh, at scale with billions of people around the world using cotton means there is uh, an inordinate amount of pesticide and fertilizer going into those crops, often excessively, uh, which is then flushed through the soil into uh, water supplies affecting the quality of the life in streams, uh, affecting the nature of the soil in those areas. And so just anything at, at the kind of scale that we're talking about with global agricultural practices has a huge impact and a growing impact on the health of our soil, um, the ability of the, the, the soil to grow new and additional crops, to boost uh, yields. Um, so whether we're talking about erosion or land conversion 
or the, the quality of our soil, uh, the, the amount of fertilizers going into uh, these landscapes, um, there are some really pernicious unintended consequences of growing food to feed 7 billion people, and it, many of them are unavoidable. What we're beginning to think about is what are the alternatives and what, what in some ways do we need to move back towards and what can we learn from the way, the variety of ways people are trying new ways of producing food to, um, to move forward. Well, and let's talk about that because this contest, Solution Search, is all about finding those scalable solutions. So let's talk about it. Um, first of all, who's eligible to apply? Basically, anybody's eligible to apply. Um, corporations, nonprofits, uh, individuals, anybody out there who believes they have a really good, um, ideally proven or promising approach to growing food or producing um, grains, uh, food sources of any kind, or agricultural materials in a way that also enhances the, the natural ecosystem around it. Right. And the contest website mentions that the solution search is focusing on behavior changes in agriculture that are primed for broad adoption, not simply concepts identified in a scientific lab. How can applicants be sure that their ideas meet this criteria? Talk to us in a bit more detail about this. Well, this is the tricky part. So what, 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 what we're really looking for is, um, is not something that's not just an idea, that someone has sketched out or, you know, an initial, you know, three-month rotation of one crop. Um, but that, that's one end of the spectrum. We're also not expecting entrants to have randomized controlled trials or, or um, agricultural ministry-approved uh, approaches that have already been tested and, and are, are certified. But we're looking for those promising uh, practices um, in fact, we'd, we'd, we'd prefer that people not even worry too much about judging their own entries before they submit them, the more the merrier. We're, we're looking to see, um, to, to cast a very broad net and to see out there in the world, what are people trying, what's working, what's promising um, for conserving soil, you know, what's promising for considering biodiversity or water uh, use reduction or different kinds of crop rotation that would leave the soil better off uh, after you've grown a crop than, than before. What are the myriad ways that people are either experimenting or have already proven their practices to be effective so that we can uh, shine a spotlight on them, celebrate them, uh, and, and then begin to propagate um, what, what really works. Absolutely. Now, talk to us about the timeline for entering the contest, and is there any benefit if people apply early, if they get right on this? <laughs> well, the, 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 the benefit is you, you have less competition, at least um, uh, on paper, um, you know, in these next few weeks as, as the contest really gets up and running. Generally, though, we find, Jill, that people tend to apply in the last few days. Um, 
it's 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 unfortunate, but I think it's human nature. A dead, nothing speaks like a deadline. Um, our <laughs> deadline is March 10th, 2017. So people have a, a couple of months to put together their applications. They really don't need that much time to put them together. It's a simple format. Um, entering it on the, informa- the necessary information online doesn't take much time. Um, what we're looking for are good ideas, um, a good story, ideally some good data to go with it, um, and, a, and a way of conveying the solution such that any other practitioner anywhere else in the world can quickly get a sense of just what you're trying and, and whether it's relevant for them to, to, to experiment with in their own, um, in their own endeavors. Gotcha. Now, talk to us about the prizes. I mean, of course, that's the lure. Um, and then, is there any specific way in which the prizes have to be utilized by the winners? Okay, good question. So, um, we have a range of prizes um, to incentivize people to enter. Uh, the grand prize, uh, there are two, um, for $30,000 each. Uh, one is awarded to the judge's choice. We have a, a blue-ribbon panel of experts in the field who will pick uh, their own first place winner, and then we'll have a uh, what we call the People's Choice uh, Grand Prize, which is the entry that wins the most uh, votes on the site. Just to give you a sense of how that works, um, we will uh, the the the, um, the the contest will be open until March 10th. After March 10th, we will be um, having a technical panel review all of the entries to narrow them down to, to a, a shorter list. The judging panel, the, the official uh, judging panel, will then get to work and they'll take that shorter list and they'll narrow it down to, uh, to 10. So then there will be 10 finalists. We, we believe that it's a, we, we want the judges to pick their own winner out of those 10, um, but then we want to give the general public a chance um, for a couple of purposes, to review the top ten finalists and vote to elect the winner. This is in part because it's a it's a great way of engaging a lot more people into what can feel like a or seem like an esoteric uh, concept. Um, it also um, enables some of these entrepreneurs out there in the field to begin to market their approaches and get a little more visibility. And so, um, so the judges pick their winner, and and then and then the people. Uh, pick theirs. But we've also got a number of category prizes. So we assume, based on our past experience with these solution searches, that there's, there's going to be groups um, and uh, entrepreneurs um, um, entering who are really focused on community and social impact. There's going to be others that are really focused at this core issue of biological diversity and enhancing soil quality and the like. Um, and there, there are some that are going to really be focused on food security or you know, uh, boosting yields at, at, at little environmental cost and, you know, nutrition impacts. There's probably a group that'll, that'll really be a segment anyway that's going to be really focused on water. These are all the major issues uh, surrounding food production right now. And so we want to have category prizes for each of those areas, which serves a couple of purposes. One, one it, 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 it helps us create kind of a a taxonomy, if you will, of the various approaches and the various goals and aspirations of all these um, um, wily harvesters out there. Um, and second, it lets us begin to organize how we can uh, promote these uh, innovations um, and promising opportunities um, within, the, within the communities. So the way the process rolls out is 
through those three phases of judging, first a, a technical group and then a judge's group and then a, and then a popular um, a vote, um, we all begin to, especially the, the judges, the partners, um, and RARE's staff, we begin to learn a lot about exactly what's going on out there. And that informs the way then we, we move forward with this community that we're building as we speak by networking mm-hmm. and recruiting uh, folks from around the world to, to first to judge uh, and then to enter the contest. Very exciting stuff. We're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we'll talk. We've got much more to talk about with Brett and about this contest and actually where you can find it. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. For all of you who enjoy Go Green Radio, and I know we have some fans out there, I get your tweets and I get your emails and I appreciate you so much. I just want to remind you that Go Green Radio is actually just a little sliver. It's a part of a much bigger organization that I founded in 2002 called the Go Green Initiative. And the Go Green Initiative is the global leader in environmental education. We are working with schools in all 50 U.S. states and in 73 countries 
countries around the world, giving them free training and consultation, helping them to reduce their environmental footprint, helping them to conserve natural resources, and maybe most importantly, helping them to protect children's health through environmental stewardship, reducing those environmental pollutants that are often found around schools or playgrounds and places where children gather. So if you'd like to check us out, go to www.gogreeninitiative.org. Get involved. We love to have partnerships. Of course, we appreciate your donations, but we also would love for your school, if you're representing a school, to register. We work with anybody, preschool through university, so check it out. Our guest today, in case you're just tuning in to Go Green Radio, is Brett Jenks. He is the CEO of another nonprofit organization called Rare. And today we're talking about Solution Search, which is a global contest that they have launched to help find sustainable agricultural practices that are out there operating somewhere around the globe. And we were talking just before the break about the prizes. And Brett, I'd love for you to tell us um, how much the prizes are in U.S. dollars and how that prize money can be utilized by the the winners of your contest. Great. So uh, prize money-wise, we have uh, two grand prizes. They're $30,000 each, one awarded by the uh, judges. Uh, our Blue Ribbon Judging Panel. The other uh, awarded to the winner uh, of the top, among the top ten finalists of the what we call the popular vote, and that's when um, the general public is going to be invited uh, online sometime uh, later this late spring, early summer, to vote on uh, what they believe to be the the best new promising innovation in um, uh, biologically diverse. Uh, enhancing agricultural practices. It's a mouthful, but basically farming for biodiversity. We've also got a, a category prizes uh, in four different categories of about $15,000 each. So one for community and social impact, one for biodiversity impact, one for uh, food security and nutrition, uh, and one for um, water uh, waste reduction or water impact. We also have a an early entrant prize. So this is five thousand dollars. And to your question earlier about how do we uh, motivate people to to get online and and to to enter, the the deadline for the early entrant prize of five thousand dollars is February tenth. I do know that uh, while we just launched this before the holidays, there are already um, a handful, maybe a half dozen entries. So there are some some early entrants uh, in in the contest, so people may want to hurry if they're trying to win that prize. And what is the URL? What's the web address that people can use to check out the contest? Okay, it's, just, it's really simple. It's solutionsearch.org. Uh, and uh, get, in, get into that site, and you'll also be able to see at solutionsearch.org, uh, which is sponsored by, run by Rare, uh, a number of other previous contests to give you a, a, a sense of what these Look like, you know, Julie. You also asked about what what these folks um, um, can spend or, uh, this this funding on. What we found in the past is, first of all, we don't have a lot of rules and regulations about this. These are entrepreneurs, and we feel like this prize money should be should be theirs. Generally speaking, though, we find that they they um, past winners have been investing uh, this the, the prize money in in some way expanding their impact. So it usually means. Um, taking their approach to a new area, a new community, a new country, uh, publishing or doing further research to to uh, improve the idea, 
um, generally outreach, improvement, and, and expansion. Most of the mm-hmm. folks that are entering are pretty gung ho about, you know, not just improving their, you know, their own practice, but actually have making making a dent in the universe, if you will. Absolutely. Now, part of the efficacy of this contest it lies in your judging panel. Tell us a little bit about your judges, how they were chosen, and what expertise they possess that makes them, you know, a credible source of, of information uh, to to look at these contest entries and make a, a determination of who should rise to the top. Great. Well, we are really fortunate to have um, just an incredible judging panel. If you If you look at you know, think about biological diversity uh, and agriculture and the environment around the world, and then you look at our judging panel. Um, it, it's just really gratifying to know that the the brand new executive secretary of the Convention on Biological Diversity. This is the global uh, enterprise that where, where 190 countries agree on what the um, biodiversity priorities are uh, for the planet. Um, uh, Christiana Pasca Palmer is the, 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 the newly appointed executive secretary. She's on the judging panel. So basically, wow. the woman in charge of global biodiversity, she's on the panel. Now, that convention has a funding mechanism, and it is the largest funding mechanism for biodiversity in the world. It's called the Global Environment Facility. We're really happy that the CEO of the Global Environment Facility, um, Dr. Naoko Ishii, uh, is also a judge uh, on this panel. So um, she is um, just uh, she and, and and the GEF we call it uh, offer a great opportunity to bring exposure to these promising approaches. Um, similarly, Juan Pablo Bonilla, a terrific guy who is at the very senior in the Inter American Development Bank and who's in charge of climate change and sustainable development, he is on the judging panel. Um, one of the leaders in, in climate change and especially climate adaptation globally is the Stockholm Resilience Center. And Dr. Per Olson, who's the head of Adaptive Governance Networks and Learning, basically you know, the heart of the heart of the Stockholm Resilience Center um, and their work on adaptation, uh, he's on the judging panel. We also have a global leader in um, uh, nutrition uh, from GAIN, the Global Alliance uh, for Nutrition, um, and the Director of Agriculture there, Bonnie McClafferty, is on the judging panel. We have Daniel Nuremberg, the head of the Food Tank, co-founder and president of the Food Tank. Um, from our colleagues in Germany, uh, the head of the Blue Solutions Initiative at uh, GIZ, uh, which is um, affiliated with the German government, does a lot of their development work around the world, Ilona Porsche. She is also on the panel. And then from Mexico, the head of biological corridors um, at Conabio, which is a a major um, government agency working on biodiversity and agriculture uh, in in our neighboring Mexico, Pedro Alvarez uh, Icasa is on the panel. It's a pretty extraordinary group, globally representative and folks who care deeply and, and who run organizations that, that uh, in, in many ways are leading the, the way on um, increasing food production in a way that makes the world and uh, its food supply more sustainable. Fantastic. What an all-star cast. Now, I noticed that you have several partner organizations as well, but there was one in particular that really caught my attention um, just simply because I, I love them. I think that they do such great work. Uh, Save the Children. 
Talk to us about their involvement in the contest and what they bring to the contest. Well, we're, we're really excited to have Save the Children on board. And this is the leading independent organization for children and families. And, you know, they reach upwards of 125 million children in 120 countries around the world um, through, through their, you know, a, a vast array of, of programs they bring on health and disaster relief and education and sustainable livelihoods, et cetera, et cetera. So they're a natural fit in, in many ways because of their emphasis on community empowerment and taking good models and disseminating them throughout their, uh, their network. So in addition to joining the other partners in, in circulating contest information and helping us recruit, Save the Children has also agreed to have its um, country offices uh, connect with promising entrants and finalists and winners. So it, it just, um, you know, Save the Children, like many of the other folks we've mentioned, will play a critical role in uh, helping diffuse the innovations that we uncover. That's wonderful. What a what a great symbiotic relationship to have. Now, of course, a contest needs sponsors. Um, and, and I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about your contest sponsors and what they hope to achieve. Why are they involved? Well, so the, the most important of our sponsors for this endeavor is the German International Climate Initiative, um, which in, in the, the German acronym is is icky, uh, but it's, it's, it's much nicer than, than it sounds. These guys are fantastic, and and they're part of the German Federal Ministry for Environment uh, and and Nature Conservation, and they're really they have a mandate from the German government basically to to help countries protect biodiversity around the world in the same way our State Department has a a commitment to peace and nature conservation and. Uh, the, the German Ministry of Environment funds a great deal of work around the world on climate adaptation, agricultural productivity, um, uh, biodiversity conservation. And so for, for them, this contest is a way of, of, of meeting their mission, um, of sourcing, crowdsourcing what's working. Um, and I know they're keenly interested in finding ways to not just identify what works, but to help propagate it and to help take some of these ideas to the proverbial scale that you know we all aspire to. So that's that's um, one really key sponsor. Another key partner and sponsor is um, called iFoam Organics International. This is a group that I didn't know much about before we we started working with them, but um, it's it's an incredibly robust network of essentially anybody who's anybody around the world focusing on organic agriculture. So whether it's a, a farmer, a farmer's association, a federation of associations, a, you know, a national uh, industry-led organic um, mm-hmm. uh, institution, all of those organizations somehow seem to converge um, through uh, iPhone Organics International. So that brings a really terrific network for us in terms of both sourcing uh, solutions, um, but also then fostering peer-to-peer exchanges and, and s- ensuring that the lessons that we learn from this process are, uh, right. are diffused. Well, you've got quite a, a gathering, both of judges and partners and sponsors. That's the way to put on a successful contest. Well done, Brett. We're <laughs> going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have much more about solu- solution search. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. 
Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Well, back to Go Green Radio. In case you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Brett Jenks. He's the CEO of an organization called Rare. And we're talking today specifically about a contest that they are opening up to the entire globe um, to help solve some of the most pressing issues um, with providing enough food for our growing population worldwide. And you can find information about that contest at solutionsearch.org. I know even just right here in the U.S., and actually I've been communicating with some university students in Africa as well, but I know we have a lot of listeners who are college students studying um, agricultural solutions for the 21st century. Check out the this contest. This may well apply to you, solutionsearch.org, and get involved. Now, Brett, once the winners are chosen, that's not the end of the contest, right? I mean, you have some workshops planned for them. Uh, talk to us about what happens next after someone is, is chosen as one of your winners. Great. Well, the contest is really just the beginning of the process. Uh, our goal is to find what works and uh, at least replicate it, if not you know, enable a number of these solu- promising solutions to, um, to be adopted and scaled uh, in different parts of the world. So we, we have a multi-step process to do that. So at some point um, around uh, September, we'll bring together the 10 finalists. We'll have a big uh, solution search award ceremony in New York City, uh, probably the second or third week of, of uh, September in New York City. And then um, at that point, we'll provide some additional training to those 10 finalists and networking opportunities so that they can begin to uh, develop plans for replicating and scaling their approaches. Uh, but then we're going to do something quite interesting um, after that, which is to um, – we, we are 
simultaneously developing a really low-cost way of training uh, local uh, extensionists or promoters or educators in the developing world to run uh, month-long or year-long educational campaigns. We call them campaigning for conservation. And so what we want to do is merge these two ideas. So once we have a suite of what we feel, we at Rare feel, are replicable, promising um, solutions for agriculture and nature, we want to train literally hundreds of local leaders to go out and help promote these ideas. So they'll be trained to do the essentially the conservation and agricultural marketing and promotion that governments and industry and um, conservation organizations need in order to not just get the word out but get the practice uh, going. Um, and oh, so that's I the love second that. phase. Yeah, that that is so exciting, and I can't wait to see what happens. You're going to have to come back and tell us more about how that all plays out. You know, sometimes, Brett, good ideas are just not enough because there are public policy issues and obstacles that can sometimes stand in the way of implementing a great idea. Can you talk to us about any of the public policy obstacles that you foresee that might impede uh, the scaling of some of the solutions that your contest will uncover? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's, it, you know, Rare has for decades been the go-to group for grassroots uh, community mobilization and um, behavior change, so changing practices at the local level. And as we become more successful, we've increasingly encountered this question. How do you take uh, what works in a community and overcome some of the obstacles for national-level Adoption. You know, a really good example is uh, the first solution search we ran was about um, overfishing in coastal communities. And in six weeks or so, we got roughly 100 entrants from 40-plus countries, all of whom said they had found some way to reduce overfishing along their coastlines, you know, from Zanzibar to the Philippines, um, from Brazil to, to Chile. Um, and we use the solution search process to identify five or six really key insights. We bundled them together into a, a little solution package. Uh, we call it Fish Forever. And we, we are now rolling that out in five countries at more than, uh, by the end of next year, it'll be 72 different sites. So solution search is designed to not just identify what works, but then to replicate it. But in each of those five countries then, we've had to develop the capacity to work with the Minister of Fisheries, to work with other cabinet members, and to begin to address, as well as local officials, to begin to address some of the hurdles to sustainable fishing. You know, for example, um, the lack of any real management of nearshore coastal waters, uh, the lack of rights for fishermen to... to uh, essentially decide how they're going to fish in, in a particular area. So I w- we've, we've, we've really made a lot of progress the last few years, and in fact, I would say we're on the verge of having scalable solutions to small-scale fisheries with the full endorsement of federal agencies in several of those countries. Uh, wow. I think we could see the same thing. Um, we could project ahead and see the same thing coming out of these 
biodiversity-friendly agricultural practices where if you show they work at the local level, they, they benefit people in, in remote rural areas, they benefit nature, and they're productive, they, so they feed the people and they nourish the landscape, well, then it's not difficult to envision the kind of uh, polit- local political movement needed to get a governor or even a minister on board with a homegrown solution. Well, and the thing is, I'm wondering if there's any difference in achieving something like that overseas versus, you know, here in the United States where we've seen farmers being sued by large, you know, ag companies and, um, you know, chemical companies and what have you. Do you have more success in those types of issues overseas than you might in the U.S.? It's a good question. Uh, Honestly, um, I have not, in 25 years of working in conservation, ever run a project in the United States. So um, because most of the world's biodiversity is found in the developing tropics, the return on investment of our work is just so much higher working you know, in Brazil and Indonesia and the Philippines and South Africa than, you know, than here. We've really, um, I can't really speak to those challenges. I would say just as a citizen, you know, reading the newspaper and sharing notes with colleagues who do work on, you know, the farm bill or agricultural practices in the U.S., the U.S. is so mechanized and industrialized and corporatized that, that the, the farm lobby uh, makes for conservationists who want to you know, improve biodiversity conservation in agriculture just makes it a much bigger, uh, much bigger challenge. Um, that would yeah. be my assessment. So you're right. That's my gut feeling. I just wondered, you know, based on your experience, what you thought about that. Now, I'll bet that we have a lot of listeners out there who've been listening to this interview, and they want to get involved somehow with RARE, either by donating or volunteering or some other mechanism. Talk to us for the few remaining moments that we have on the show about how our listeners can get involved. Well, we, we, um, there's a number of ways to get involved with RARE. I mean, I, I wouldn't be doing my job as CEO if I didn't say that one of the best ways you could get involved would be to go online and support RARE uh, through our website, rare.org, make a donation, uh, get on a mailing list, sign up to get more information, uh, and, and generally just help. Now, that's, that's the easy way to help by clicking a few buttons and, and becoming a supporter. There's also a lot of opportunities to um, to get involved with um, through internship programs. I know a lot of you, uh-huh. your your listeners, are in universities. We have a pretty robust internship program, and it's growing. Uh, we intend to purposefully expand it because we just see so many young people today. Absolutely, who are so much more aware than my generation was, and who want to and do is something. That, absolutely, and that's rare.org, correct? Yeah, exactly, rare.org. I wish we had so much more time, but unfortunately, we're out of time with you, Brett. But thank you for coming on Go Green Radio. Thank you to our listeners for joining us. We'll be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. And until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. To 
Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.